We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, August 6th, 2018. I am your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to talk to the executive director and legislative director of the Reserve Officers Association. We're going to find out exactly what the ROA is all about and what they're doing to advocate on behalf of reservists, guardsmen, and all of those who have worn the uniform of the United States Armed Forces. And we're also going to talk to Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for IAVA, returns to the show to talk about the latest issues facing IAVA and that IAVA is facing down. Big one right now, burn pits. They believe that they're getting extremely close to getting some significant legislation passed through. They're calling on Congress to do so. We're going to talk to her about that and oh so much more coming up later today. And now it's time to welcome super producer Jake Hughes into the studio. This time sitting on the uh, the 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 other side of the desk because last week you were filling in for me as host. How did last week go? Last week went very well, and uh, I will say I'm glad. I hope you had fun on your family vacation, but I am also glad that you are in the hot seat now, and I'm on the more comfortable other side of the desk now. Yeah, yeah, it was a good vacation. It was. Uh, one of those vacations that was relaxing but exhausting at the same time. My wife and I got home last night. It was like we just we we brought first off we brought more back than we went with, of course, because we got gifts from people and all sorts of things. We went to the outlets up in Connecticut and brought back more stuff. We got it inside the front door, and then we were just like, "Meh, we can deal with that <laughs> at a later time." So we went, collapsed on the couch, and uh, relaxed after a week of quote relaxation unquote. Um, you know, it was, it was warm and sunny, which was good because the forecast had been rainy, uh, where we were going. It ended up that it just rained like an hour the night that we got there and then it drizzled five days later. But other than that, beautiful time. And actually my son is still on vacation. We were with my mother and her friends and our family and all that stuff on the beach in Connecticut. Now my son has moved over to hang out with my dad and stepmother, so he's hanging out with them on the beach for another week. So oh, wow. My wife and I have, um, you know, not a vacation from our son. It was actually kind of weird yesterday being around without him. Houses get a lot quieter when you take a five-year-old <laughs> out of the equation. But her not having to wake up and get him to school or camp or anything this morning, um, It'll be an odd week. We're 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 definitely back to work, but it's going to be a week that just feels a little bit off. Um, still, got home last night, and one of the first things that I did was check the DVR to make sure that a new show that I'd wanted to watch had recorded, and indeed it did. Former guest of the show, Tim Kennedy. His new show, Tim Kennedy is Hard to Kill, started airing on Discovery last week, and Really good show, Jake. Really, really good show. So I thought it would be, and, and I actually, the last time that I talked to Tim, uh, when he waterboarded himself on social media, that was the last time that we spoke to him about uh, you know everything that's going on in his life and, and asked him, why'd you waterboard yourself? And 
Got the, uh, the, the honest, open explanation you kind of get from Tim when you ask for it. My thought when I first heard about this show that it would be like, I don't know, people trying to hunt Tim Kennedy, which seems like a bad idea because he's a guy that can kill you in a number of ways, yeah. a number of distances. What it actually is, as Tim told us when we talked to him, and as I've now seen with my own two eyes, it's kind of like Dirty Jobs, but uh, a little bit more dangerous. <laughs> like dirty and dangerous jobs that might turn into faces of death. That's what it is, because these wow. things that he's doing, he's jumping out in on the first episode. He was in a, um, a stunt aircraft, putting it into spins. He's not a pilot. He'd never flown before. They told him like some basic things. And yeah, there was another pilot in there with him, uh, I guess, to take over if things got really dicey. But if things get really dicey in one of those stunt planes or you know, good luck. So he was talking about the job of being an experimental test pilot. And the guy who he was with actually had video footage of a crash he was in. Uh, Tim's in there. And what I think was the most interesting and impressive thing about the show, Jake, is that we're talking about Tim Kennedy, uh, Green Beret sniper, former UFC middleweight contender, has wins over guys who would go on to become champion like Michael Bisping. This is someone who you think of as, uh, you know, super alpha male, like apex predator when it, on the right. human food scale, you know? Uh, by the way, don't eat people. It's a bad thing to do, typically, unless uh, unless your plane crashes in the Andes. We've all seen that movie. Yeah. But anyway, back to the point. Uh, the interesting thing was seeing someone that you have that kind of respect for, his abilities and his skills, gaining respect for someone that he had never really thought about the details of before, like a pilot. Like when he went up with, um, there was a military tie to the show beyond him just being a Green Beret. Uh, he went to an Air Force base. I can't remember which one. My apologies to the uh, to the Air Force. You've got a lot of bases in the middle of nowhere. They all kind of look the same. Anyway, he went to an Air Force base, and they were in the, uh, the, the T aircraft, the training jets that they use. Super fast aircraft. Not quite as fast as some of the fighters that you use uh, after you graduate from the training aircraft. But they were pulling like almost 7 Gs. I think they got up to 6.7 Gs. And you could see he never lost consciousness. But you could see that he wasn't responding anymore to the yeah. pilot. The, the pilot was like, hey, how you doing back there? And there was no response coming from the back. And so the two things that were really impressive were, one, seeing him gain that respect. Like, how his question for the pilot when he got down, that Air Force pilot, uh, I believe it was a lieutenant colonel uh, who flew him around. His question for the pilot was, how are you able to control the aircraft and focus on that while also talking to me while also doing the same breathing and flexing thing that I have to do to just not pass out. And you could tell he was shocked at the the physicality of flying a, a jet like that. So you could you could see that this was someone despite being that, you know, apex predator status was still super impressed with what these guys go through and the things that they're able to focus on and do. And when it came to the plane almost crashing, the fact that he had trained specifically for what they were going to do, they had told him, like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to do A, B, C, D. When you're flying a plane, things go wrong, and there's very little that you can do to... uh very little that you can do right. to, to fix the situation. He also jumped out of a plane, and then um, the one that showed his uh, his his physicality was being trapped in the cockpit of an airplane as it caught on fire. So they put him in basically a busted aircraft, locked him into the seat, locked the cockpit, and set it on fire with him inside <laughs> of it. The cockpit didn't open properly. 
He found out afterwards that it was because some of the latches had melted from the heat of the fire, basically. Um, the What he ended up doing was just physically, because he's so darn strong, forcing the cockpit of that aircraft open. But it, it was a really fascinating show. So that was the one thing you noticed. And then the competitive aspect of him. And you saw, like, oh, this is someone who's competitive in every single thing that he does. He was angry that he wasn't able to get out of that aircraft as fast as he wanted to <laughs> and that he had to resort to brute force and not skill and technicality to get out of it. Um, but really, yeah, fantastic show and uh, uh, a veteran who's, who's still serving. He's still uh, in the... Uh, I don't know how to technically classify it. I know he's told us before, but he's either National Guard or Reserves uh, serving with a Special Forces unit down there in Texas and deploys fairly regularly. I mean, we just saw him deployed in Niger uh, not too long ago. Um, yeah, so an interesting show airing on Discovery. You can check your local listings for that, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought I would. You know, he, I think he's a pretty cool guy and also as being a mixed martial arts fan, uh, he's an interesting interesting fellow just overall but also is involved in a lot of the things that i take a personal interest in so i thought i would enjoy it and boy did i sure enjoy it it was a good show it was a good show and he's going to do uh a, a number of different jobs throughout it and like dirty jobs this is again dirty jobs that could turn into faces of death in any moment <laughs> he uh next i think is american bullfighter which i heard him on joe rogan's podcast and it sounded like this was a this was a hairy one like he was inches away from maybe uh, getting gore, maybe having the title of the show changed to Tim Kennedy was killed. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it apparently got that close. I'm really not hard enough to kill to it. it. Yeah. The one thing that I will note, uh, technicality uh, on my end, I wanted to record it in HD, but I didn't set it to record before we left. So I had to do it through the app on my phone. Swear I did it in HD. Got home. Nope. SD. Oh, first world problems. It was, it was, I know. Well, it's a significant problem. I want to watch my TV with, with clarity. I want to be able to see uh, the pores on people's faces. Uh, I want to see uh, the veins on Tim Kennedy's arms when he's stressing <laughs> to open that, uh, that cockpit. But yeah, it's a, it's a good show. Uh, I would recommend. He also has another new one on the History Channel that's all about snipers, essentially. Um, that's also very cool. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on out there in the world of TV and entertainment with veterans, of course. We know that. But at Connecting Vets, we focus as much or more on the news taking place out there. And I want to get your opinion on this, Jay, because I read it and I had a thought. Military spouse deported to Mexico 20 years after illegally entering the United States. What do you think about that story? Uh, or do you? <laughs> I know I do. And a big part of me wants to be sympathetic and believe that, you know, she's military spouse. You have the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, it's been 20 years and you haven't done the paperwork. You haven't signed the papers. Or Yep. And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. So her husband served in... Apparently, both the Marine Corps and National Guard. Uh, she entered in 1998, the year that I joined the Navy, and married her husband in the same year. They both knew that she was here illegally, and it appears that over 20 years, they did nothing to change that. I mean, that's, that's as far as we know. Uh, they didn't do anything to try and uh, rectify that situation. I understand it's not easy. Listen, guys. <laughs> That's the way it is. It's not supposed to be easy to get into a place that has to be secure, like the United States. I just I don't understand. I don't understand how people don't understand that. Yeah. I really don't. There was a senator, I believe, who I saw a video of a part of a hearing who didn't understand that entering the country illegally was breaking the law. 
that it had to be explained <laughs> by by I believe it was a DHS yeah, I saw that. person had that to be explained. In, that like, was interesting. It, no, it's illegal. That's like why are you calling them illegal immigrants? Because it's illegal to come into the country without the proper documentation. We need to know who you are. And I always use the analogy of you know if if and P, and people will say, well, hey, Mexico and Honduras, El Salvador, all these places have significant problems, and people are just trying to get away. Okay, well, first off, my, my first thought is, and what I would do if we had significant issues like that in the United States, fix your own country. Don't just leave. That's my first thought. My second thought is, let's say you live on a street, Jake. We'll call it uh, Hughes Road. Okay. It's just a whole bunch of people named Hughes. You live in a house, and your house has a lot of problems. The roof is leaking. Uh, the lawn has gotten unwieldy. You've got bad pipes. The electric uh, electrical outlets aren't working properly. Uh, you don't have the money to fix it. It's going to be really hard to fix it, to do it on your own. Uh, you just decide, well, I'm going to move into my neighbor's house. Is that allowed? Nope. What would you do if you were that neighbor in that house? Get the hell out of my house. Yeah, at the very least, if someone just shows up. And that's essentially what's happening here. It's it's yep. it's it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like, dude, not everyone can come in here. And particularly in this day and age, we need to know who's coming in here. There have yep. been a number of instances of people who had ties to terrorism trying to come across the border in Mexico, coming across the Mexican border, coming across the Canadian border. We need to know who's coming in here or else we'll have another September 11th. We'll have another uh, name your terror attack that's taking place around the world. Yeah, we my, don't want that to happen. Yeah, my thing is twofold. Number one, uh, I don't understand why you escape all these, let's be honest, socialist countries and then come here and then vote to make the country more <laughs> socialist. I don't understand that. Yeah. But number two, I have... Again, I have considered myself a centrist, but I've never once heard a good argument for why we shouldn't know exactly who comes into our country. Because there isn't one. Exactly. I don't. I mean, from a national security perspective, I've never, I've never been given a logical reason. People will say, "Oh, well, that's like a police state." No, it's not. It's come on in, but sign the damn guest book. Yeah, it's uh, you know, if, I mean, someone doesn't come into your wedding and just sit down and start eating. It's expensive to to pay for a wedding, and you want the people who you want there. You don't want wedding crashers in there and things like that. It's kind of how I look at it. And when it comes to a military spouse, people doing this thing, and and listen, I have a great amount of respect for military spouses and all that they do and all that they go through. I'm. For one, I'm glad that I did not have a spouse while I was in the military yeah. because I can't imagine putting uh, my my wife through that while we were in there, uh, while I was in. This is, uh, listen, she didn't serve. If she had, they would have figured this out. I mean, this this is, there, it seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors to me. She broke the law. It was 20 years ago. She has two citizen daughters. Okay, great. Guess what? They can stay. She can't. I mean, that's the way that it works. That's what the law is. Want to change it? Change the law. Until then, I'm sorry, you got to go. And hopefully you'll be able to figure out how to get back into the country, if it is even possible, after 20 years of essentially being a fugitive in the United States. I just, I don't, I don't, it's, it seems like there are certain rules that are, certain laws that are okay to break in this country and certain laws that aren't, depending on who's looking at them. And yeah. I, I don't, that's not how I look at things. I look at things like, hey, the law is the law. Vote to change it. We have a democracy. We can do that. This isn't Venezuela. This isn't Cuba. This isn't North Korea. We can do what we want to do and change the laws. So vote to change the laws. The problem is, despite, I think, what we're hearing in a lot of places, this is not 
the, the vast majority in the country do not think that, that, that it's okay to just come into this country illegally. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people in the media who do, and I think that there is a clear bias in the media, uh, the majority of mainstream media outlets. I think it's very clear that there's a strong bias in the media. Just look at how they cover politics. Look at how they cover anything, really, and you just see a strong, significant bias in there. Yeah, I'm not talking about President Trump. I'm talking about even when Mitt Romney was running for president. There's a strong, uh, if you polled all of the anchors and reporters at the major networks and CNN and MSNBC, which which party do you think they Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I think it's like 12, either 6 or 12% of reporters vote a certain way and the rest vote another way. Yeah, well, and if if you can't guess which way that which way yeah, those know, are, right? I don't think you're paying a lot of attention. But it, this is something that listen, if you want to change it, change the laws. But there's not enough anywhere near enough support to change those laws, despite the narrative that's being told to us that oh, everyone's again. No, I'm not. I don't know a lot of people who are like, yeah, just let everybody into this country. And I know people on all sides, man. Yeah, I know some people who believe that uh, everyone should be allowed to come into this country. I Okay, they're allowed to have that thought. They're allowed to have that belief. I don't believe it. The vast majority of people that I know don't believe it. As you said, for one, we need to know who the heck is coming in here. Uh, how many? I mean, and and it's 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 a blip on the radar, you could say. It's a small fraction of those who are coming into the country illegally. But we've had murders, rapes, I mean, child killings of committed by people who were not supposed to be in the country. And had we had any idea of their background in their home country, would never have been allowed in. You can not allow just open the floodgates. Hey, everybody, come on in. You can't do it. You can't do it. You've seen problems here in the United States, seen problems in Europe with it. I, it it's you can not do it. It's just not a tenable situation. And I don't understand how many people just don't seem to understand that. Just think that it's oh no, everyone's everyone's like me. Everyone is just an open-minded, open-hearted, loving person who wants to come in and just get a job. And okay, then you know what? The majority of people are. You're right. The majority of people are. There's a problem though. The majority of people is not all of the people, so you have to worry about those other ones. Yeah, my my thing about the immigration thing is, and this you know kind of colored by my faith or whatever. I believe we should help immigrants, people who want to come in. I say I have two conditions of whether you can be American: can you accomplish your mission, whatever that mission may be, and are you a jerk? If the answers are yes and no, welcome aboard. Just sign the guest book. Come in the right way. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, come in the right way. And and one of the arguments I hear is that it takes a long time. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, then wait. I mean, yeah. how come there are, and there are a lot of people who are legal immigrants who come to the country the right way who are not happy about the illegal immigration? Because it's, it's essentially they waited in line for six months, a year, two years, whatever the case may be. And other people just jumped in ahead of them because they didn't want to do that. I mean, it's the same as like if you're waiting in any line. It's it's there's a process that you've got to go through, and if you don't go through it, sorry. And the fact that you were married to someone who served in the military doesn't really change it for me. Nope. Doesn't change it for me at all. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. And you can call me cold-hearted. You can say that I'm evil, and whoa, she served just as much as her husband did. First off, no, no, not exactly. <laughs> Listen, again, we understand and we appreciate military spouses and all that stuff. I, I know it's difficult. It's an extremely difficult life. And again, I'm, I'm glad that my wife didn't have to go through that, that we met after I got out of the military. But it's not the same. So so please don't do that. Uh, but you also just have 
again, like, uh, so what? If she if she got a DUI, would her being a military spouse make any difference in that? Nope. If she killed somebody, she was a murderer. Would her being a military spouse make any difference in that? Nope. There you go. You break the law, you break the law. That's how it goes. You don't like it? Change the law. That's the end of the story, at least in my eyes. It's the end of the story. Another story, though, that I saw last week while I was on vacation, and I don't know what's going on with this, but we've seen a few of these. Uh, The active shooter alert at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base last Thursday, Jake. So it turns out there was no active shooter. But that an unknown individual called 911 believing there was a real-world incident occurring within the base. It appears that they were doing some sort of an exercise on the base, and this person just didn't know about it. Whether it was someone calling from off the base, on the base, whether it was someone who wanted to get out of work, you really don't know. There are those people who do that. You know, I knew... Shammers. Yeah, I knew someone who pulled a fire alarm. Called a fire alarm at a military office to because just because they wanted to get out of work early that day. Of course, when the fire department came and saw that there was nothing there and put it back up, it just went back to work. Yeah. And then they ended up reviewing the security footage and being like, "Oh, hey, why'd you do that?" <laughs> I don't know that that person was in too much longer. I uh, I didn't see them around much anymore. But it, it's happened a few times before where uh, there are things like uh, I remember at the the Naval Hospital San Diego. There was an issue out there where someone called in that there was an active shooter, and I was working at a news station in New York, and we're, we're trying to get information on this. We're watching Twitter, and some of the local reporters got it right, and we're like, nah, this doesn't sound like an active shooter. Sounds like there was a fire, and there may have been an electra- uh, electronic transformer popping or something like that. Um, I just don't understand how this keeps happening, though. This is like the third or fourth that I can recall over the uh, last couple of years. People yeah, people are overly reactionary. It's probably some military, and I don't. Again, I'm not meaning to discourage them. Oh, here probably, he goes, military spouse. <laughs> some military spouse saying. who didn't know what was going on, saw someone oh. walking around with a gun, and was like, "Oh my god!" That's a great impression, Jake. Oh my god, I can't believe that you're talking this way about military spouses. I would never. Hardest job in the military? No, no it is. It's a hard job. Let's, yes. let's be honest. But at the same time, don't 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 do that. It, I just do hard. That's just like the and I've told the story. I think of the uh, the lady that we called the predator over in uh, uh, Siganella. She had giant hair <laughs> framing her face and just kind of looked like the predator. Uh, she would talk about her husband and tell us like, "I'm going to tell my husband about you," and I'd be like, "I outrank your husband. What are you going to tell him about <laughs> me? Like, just just stop." But my husband's a captain. No, your husband's a petty officer, second class. I know who you're married to. Stop and knock that off. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it's. Uh, it, I missed a lot of stuff last week, but we got a lot of great stuff coming up this week. Just to give you a preview, some of the interviews that we've got going on. We're going to have Denver Morris from MVP. That's Merging Vets and Players organization started by Green Beret Nate Boyer and Jay Glazer. Uh, the sports broadcasting. Uh, uh, I don't know if I want to call him a legend. Is Jay Glazer a legend? I don't know. I he's don't a, even know who that is. He's a uh, he's a he's a, a a large name in the sporting broadcasting uh, world. Uh, we're also going to talk to Dan Hampton. We're going to talk to Mike Sorelli from Echelon Front. That, of course, is the organization with uh, Jocko Willink and Leif, and and they do. I, you know, they go in and they, they teach businesses how to lead, essentially, and do these speaking engagements. We've got those and oh so much more coming up this week. 
uh, to go along with, of course, our normal interviews like IAVA, who we'll be talking to just a little bit later on in the show. Of course, we'll also have the VFW American Legion. Hillvets, I'm not sure. Is Hillvets still in town this yep. week? Yeah. All right. So yep. he'll be here on Tuesday. Uh, and then, of course, Amvets, uh, Joe Chanelli or someone from Amvets will be joining us on Thursday. So looking forward to getting back into it. Feels like I never left that, uh, what is it, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine days that I wasn't here. Oh, man. Went by so quickly. So quickly. But you Not know what, Jake? Enough. By the end of it, I was ready to get back to work. There's like only so long that I can go. Especially, I, I take that back. If you're out of the country and doing that kind of exploring vacation thing that my wife and I like to do, I could do that forever. But when you're just uh, somewhere that you love and you know, and it's like, yeah, I love it up here, but a week is a week is enough. Enough. Uh, I don't know. I, I always say never underestimate my ability to do nothing. Especially when you start hitting the, uh, start hitting the uh, what do you call it? The Bloody Marys at like eleven a.m. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that that goes, man. Um, all right, so you're listening to the morning briefing. Eric Dame and Jake Hughes here. And hey, I want to remind you: go to connectingvets.com like 15, 16 times a day. Or follow us on social media. That's another way to be kept up to date on what we're doing. Our team of veterans are working hard each and every day to get brand new content up there that you will like, that you will love, that you will be able to use to make sure that you are living your best veteran life. So again, ConnectingVets.com is the website. We are at ConnectingVets on all social media platforms. And download the Radio.com app and look for Connecting Vets, and you'll see us on there, and you can listen to this show every morning. It's the Morning Briefing with Eric Dame and Jake Hughes back after this and we're going to be talking to the reserve officers associations jeff phillips and john rothrock back in a moment we're cbs radios connectingvets.com connecting vets every day online and all over social media facebook youtube instagram and twitter at connecting vets Welcome back to the morning briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And do you know why we do it? It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of the United States military and also knows what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. We know how difficult it can be, how frightening, and how it's often difficult to find the benefits that are available to you, to find all of the programs that can help you not just succeed, but thrive after you leave the service. 13 years in the Navy for me, 13 years in the Army for Super Producer Jake Hughes, and the rest of our team all served for varied amounts of times in varied services. That's why we are dedicated to this and why ConnectingVets.com is your one-stop shop for all news, information, and veteran-related benefits Go check it out every day and follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and I'm sure in some other places as well. Jake, I'm getting a, a, a yeah, you're hearing it too? Okay, gentlemen, hold on for one moment here. Of course, we're going to have some, <laughs> of course, we're going to have some technical difficulties. All right, there it is. All right, now we're good. All right, I'll just pick up from there. 
our next guests represent the Reserve Officers Association, and we're going to talk to them about what exactly the ROA is, what the ROA does, and what the ROA is doing for the veteran community. They are Jeff Phillips, the Executive Director of ROA, and John Rothrock, the Legislative Director. Gentlemen, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Eric. Great to be with you and your audience. Jeff, let's first start off with you. You retired from the United States Army, but give us the Cliff Notes version of your career, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were serving in the Army. Well, Eric, I went into the Army out of ROTC in New England, uh, UMass Amherst. I was in their four-year ROTC program. We call it ROTC. I guess it's not called ROTC anymore, ROTC. But I went right into the regular Army as a tank officer, went right to Germany where I wanted to go and served in um, in Bavaria, Bamberg, and uh, Ansbach, Germany, for three great years on what was then the border with the with the great enemy of the free world, as we used to think in those days. And I uh, learned a lot about our army. And 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 the, my my great takeaway from uh, from that period was how important uh, non commissioned officers are, sergeants, and they're the ones who helped me uh, grow from a second lieutenant into a first lieutenant. Stayed in tanks for several more years in the U.S. and ultimately became an Army public affairs officer, which was kind of what I did for the Army for the remainder, most of the remainder of my 37 years in in uniform. About two-thirds of the 37 years was in the Army Reserve, and I guess about a third of that was on full-time active duty because of the current war on terror. That Of course, that gave us a lot lot of us opportunities to be on active duty in, in our military I finished out as um, Deputy Commanding General, Army Reserve at the Army's Training and Doctrine Command down at Fort Eustis, Virginia, after having had a, a, a wonderful, fulfilling stint of two years at Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Air Force Base down near Savannah as the Deputy Commanding General of uh, 3rd Infantry Division and those installations. So I've, I've um, Uncle Sam and a bunch of great non-commissioned officers and and, and soldiers gave me the opportunity to have a very fulfilling nearly four decades in our Army serving our nation. That is quite a long time and quite a varied list of, uh, of jobs and accomplishments. Very cool stuff. Now, John, as I understand it, you're still working towards that retirement. You're serving in the Reserve. So tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, where you're from, when you joined, and what it is that you do. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, good morning, Eric. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, yes, I am a uh, still a current drilling reservist uh, with the U.S. Navy. Uh, I am a direct commission officer, so I did not go the ROTC route uh, as Jeff did and so many others. But uh, I am a late bloomer, so to speak, uh, where the, uh, the the Navy as well as many of the other services have a direct commission program. But uh, I was selected in 1999 as a uh, as DCO for the Intel program. And so I will be up on my 20 years as of uh, September, and it's been a great experience. Um, I just returned last year from a year in Afghanistan, western Afghanistan, where I was the deputy J-2 at a NATO base in Herat, Afghanistan. The Italians were the lead and the Americans were the deputies. So it was a great experience. As I've said uh, to Jeff and many others, it was the most uh, stressful uh, but yet the most rewarding experience of my life. Originally, I'm uh, from High Point, North Carolina, and uh, have uh, had a career on Capitol Hill, uh, 24 years uh, in various positions uh, with the House of Representatives, uh, and then uh, went to Afghanistan and came back, and now have the honor of uh, continuing my service 
uh, with the Reserve Officers Association. And of course, that's what we're going to talk to Jeff and John about today. Jeff is the executive director of the Reserve Officers Association, and John is the legislative director. Jeff, let's talk about your retirement. Again, retiring from the reserves is a little bit different than retiring from active duty, but it's also similar in that you don't put that uniform back on again. It just happened fairly recently for you. Do you feel that there was a benefit for you being a reserve officer, so kind of having one foot in the civilian world? one foot in the military right. world that made that transition easier? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the easy answer, the short answer is yes. I, I had been a part-time reservist and individual mobilization augmentee. So for years, I had done the Army for a couple of weeks a year. I would come, I was living in Texas for many years in Austin, Texas. That was a great place to, in which to live. And I'd come up to the Pentagon and I would work on Army public affairs staff in the, in the building. And so I had one foot in both worlds. I loved it. About the time I was getting ready to leave Washington, D.C. and go back to Texas, well, my two weeks was up. And about the time I was ready to leave Austin, Texas to come up to Washington, well, it was time for my next two weeks to begin. So that was good duty, and I enjoyed it. However, I did step out of the regular Army as a, as a fairly new major after Desert Storm in 1993 when I left the regular Army. I gave up my commission, and I just I wanted to do something different, went into civilian life, but fortunately stayed in the reserves. Uh, so I did have that separation, and I do. And although I was not immediately seeking uh, employment, I was single, still am, was single, didn't, wasn't really worried about feeding a family. Um, and I did want to, I took almost, uh, almost six months off, as I recall, uh, and, and traveled throughout the West, living out of the back of my 1983 Ford Bronco, did a lot of trout fishing in the West, and just, I love the West, so I, that was a good time. But I, sooner or later, I had to think about work. And what I was going to do next, I made maximum use of my GI Bill, went to grad school at UT Austin, uh, and then ultimately got into the work stream. But I did experience that kind of disquiet, that psychic disquiet when you think, well, you know, there's no one, no more is anyone going to give me my next job and no more is my next paycheck going to just appear in my bank account. Um, There's no career manager for me as a civilian. So I got to figure this one out for myself. And in those days, much more than today, there was absolutely really no help other than a few headhunters, some of whom were around still and do a good job, willing to find you a, you know, a job at Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble. I wasn't interested in that at the time. Perfectly good options for people. But it can be very, um, it can be very traumatic. And if you, are, if you have a family and other obligations... Uh, house payment. It's a, it's a big deal. And it is a different, the civilian world is a different world, different world. It absolutely is. And it's also a different world for reservists. And that's what the ROA, Reserve Officers Association, is all about. The reserve and the guard, you know, for those of us who are on active duty, it's oftentimes easy to forget about the reserves or the guard. And for some people to just dismiss them outright, uh, Of course, the truth is the reserves are doing incredible, important work. As John told us, uh, he was in Afghanistan and R.C. West. I was on a public affairs photography team in R.C. North and was the only Mm -hmm. active duty sailor on that team of five. Everybody else there was a reservist. Let's talk about the ROA. First off, Jeff... 
if someone walks up to you on the street, isn't familiar with the organization, says Reserve Officers Association, what's that all about? What's the answer that you give to that question? Yeah, first thing I say is that we have expanded past officers. We are now open to membership is open to non-commissioned officers, E4 and above, of course, the Marine Corps and the Army have uh, corporals who are E4, so uh, NCOs E4 and above, and we're working very hard to open up membership to all ranks, and I think that's going to happen in our, our September convention this year. So ROA is the only national organization in existence in the USA that exclusively and solely represents the interests of the reserve components of the United States, including the National Guard, NOAA, Public Health Service, and the Coast Guard Reserve. So other organizations, it's part of what they do, it's all we do. So when we get up, when we get in in the morning, and actually we, a lot of us are working at five or six in the morning and sending emails at nine or ten at night. Uh, we are solely and exclusively focused on the interests of the reserve force, the men and women in the reserve force, their families and veterans of the reserve force. It's all we do, and we're the only organization in the United States of America that does that. You know, it's something that has popped into my mind on occasion when talking to people who served in the reserves, that reservists, uh, let's be honest here, kind of get screwed when it comes time to transition out of the service where they don't have the same programs available to them that the active duty does. Uh, What is ROA doing to ensure that reservists are, are given a fair shake and are given what they deserve after having served their country just as honorably in uniform, albeit not for, you know, 24 seven, like the active duty does all year long. What is the ROA doing and what kind of success have you had in, in getting some changes made for those reservists and guard members? We are we are constantly working with industry to raise the consciousness uh, about the reserve force. and we, we, we do small things and we do big things. One of the small things we're doing is ensuring that military appreciation programs uh, wonderful programs that are that are put on by companies like Ford Motor Company, Dollar General, and others include reserve forces. So when you when you go to the Ford Motor Company and you try to uh, participate in their their military appreciation program and get a discount on an F-150, and it says active duty family members, veterans, well, we just wrote a letter to the president of Ford saying, you know, can you include reservists in this reserve forces? Uh, and we gave them some suggested language. We're going to follow up with that. So that's a little thing we do. Um, we also we also work very hard on legislation to ensure that the reserves are included in legislation uh, that benefits members of the military. We also work with other organizations on hiring programs. A lot of this is consciousness raising. And one of the things that we have just begun working on is raising uh, the awareness of the value of reservists to potential employers because of what we are seeing as an increasing reticence of some employers to bring on members of the Guard and Reserve because of these deployments that are continuing without any let-up. In fact, in some some places, especially in logistics and some of the support services, we're seeing an increase in operations tempo for members of the reserve because the active force doesn't necessarily have these specialties, and the active op tempo is as high as it ever was. So as we know, the military can't go to war without the reserve, so the reservists are activated. Well, that can be good, but for an employer, they can look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute, you're getting mobilized under, say, 12304B orders for a for an exercise, and I could understand when this you, you were you were shipping out for a war, but you're going out, you're leaving the assembly line here. You're a shop steward, you're a manager, you're a director. Um, maybe you're one of two lawyers in the law firm, and you're leaving, and it's not a war. Tell me about that. And of course, under Usera, we have federal protections, but we all know that 
people can find their way around these federal protections if they need to. So we're raising the consciousness of that, and quite frankly, one of the things ROA is very active in doing is, is lending its voice on the Hill and in the building, asking about the real role of the Reserve Force. What are we really using them for? Are we using them as a proxy for an inadequately sized active force? And are we, are we, are we, are we doing things with these mobilizations that could help or could hurt the long-term viability of the reserve force? We're also looking very hard uh, at uh, employment portals. We're looking at developing our own for reservists to find uh, work. When I say reservists, I include the, the guard. Or, or find other resources that we could work with and lend our, our financial and, and, uh, and, and database and membership to so that members of the Reserving Guard could go and find good work. There was a program called Hero to Hire that the Army had, went over to the VA where I think it died. But uh, we, what we are actually at this moment involved in doing is finding such a, such a resource for, for reservists. And a lot of this has to do with just raising public consciousness about the reserves, and one of the uh, things we're doing right now is every month in the, the the Hill newspaper, which is one of these dailies that go out Monday through Friday on the Hill, everyone in Congress, everyone in the, the political mix reads these newspapers. ROA is the only national military organization that has a monthly op-ed in it, and we just, uh, we're working on a relationship right now with the, with the Military Times Company to also offer them content, which raises the consciousness of the reserve components. John, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yes, sir. No, absolutely. Uh, part of the the, uh, the legislative aspect of this is continuing to raise awareness to not only members of Congress but also their staffs. As you well know, of the hundred, of the four hundred, of uh, five hundred and thirty-five members of the House and the Senate, uh, we have seen. Uh, sort of a, uh, a a peak and then a low, and so we're building uh, the, that number again in terms of, of uh, elected officials who have actually served in uniform uh, over the years. And so, of course, we've just uh, recently, uh, 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 the last World War II veteran retired a couple of years ago, uh, and uh, so now we're down to uh, you know a few remainders from Korea and Vietnam, but we've seen a spike uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, veterans. And so that's a real, real plus. So we work with their office. Uh, we also work exclusively with the uh, uh, the House and the Senate uh, reserve component uh, uh, guard caucuses uh, to raise awareness. Uh, and so uh, we have also been working uh, quite uh, frequently uh, with, uh, with the staffs. One in particular was a staffer named Robert Wilkie, uh, who I worked with on the House side uh, many, many years ago. Uh, he came to the Senate, worked with Senator Tillis, and is now the just confirmed as the VA secretary. So Wilkie, or Colonel Wilkie, is uh, still a drilling reservist today uh, with the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so we have a vast network, uh, vast teams that we work with in terms of some of the other associations, uh, but we also work with our membership to raise awareness on important issues uh, that are uh, that are that are important to the reserve community. We're speaking with Jeff Phillips, Executive Director of the Reserve Officers Association, and John Rothrock, Legislative Director for the Association. 
You know, I heard both of you just use the word awareness, and I think that's got to be part of the key because, again, I served on active duty, never served in the reserves. I work within uh, Veterans News and paying attention to these things. I only learned today about H.R. 5538, the Reserve Component Vocational Rehabilitation Parity Act. Until today, I did not know that reservists who deployed were not uh, to Afghanistan, Iraq, under under orders uh, 12404A and 12304B orders, were not eligible for vocational rehab. Had I known about that, I would have questioned a lot of people about why they're not eligible for those things. How important is awareness on these issues that many of us from the active duty community probably just don't think about when it comes to the reservists and just assume that they get the same treatment that we do? Right. I, I, awareness is very, very important. Part of this is education of the staff. Uh, I was also on a, uh, the staff of the, of the um, House Committee on Veterans Affairs for a couple of years. And so writing policy is incredibly complex stuff. So you've got, you got, you got a handful of people writing legislation. They may or may not be helped by advocates, commonly called lobbyists. Uh, um, and, and it is not unusual for a staffer who, who may uh, be fairly new or may not know everything about a topic. You know, there's a lot to know about these topics, and they're very, very complex, to miss something. For instance, uh, GI Bill educational be- benefits had kind of fallen through the crack for people under the same orders. They weren't getting credit for their GI Bill. And we got that corrected. A, a group of veterans, groups, uh, Student Veterans of America took the lead on this, as I recall. Great group of people. Uh, getting that inserted back into GI Bill benefits for these mobilized reservists. So these things, these things occur when you have legislation. It is almost inevitable that something will fall through the crack, um, given the complexities of of legislation. We got to remember when we're talking about reservists. Not so long ago, the reserving guard were considered part of the were considered the strategic reserve, and and the active force, which never served with them, the four-star generals never knew anyone in the reserves. They didn't serve with them. Their kids didn't go to school together. Their spouses, you know, didn't uh, didn't do activities together on the post, so they weren't known. And they were out there in the booth in the back in the corner in the dark, if, if anyone remembers the old Flip Wilson show. Uh, now, and all of a sudden, in, in Desert Storm, the reserves were massively used, especially for logistics, which is even more the case now. So things started to kind of uh, come to the fore, inequities, unfairness, gaps in letting go. Most of this was not malign, malicious. It was just an artifact of decades of the reserve being in the shadows. It's still seeping out. We still find it. Give an example that ROA went to war on and fixed. Uh, Because of this decades and decades of the reserves being the strategic and basically forgotten part of the military, if if I may, um, if, if you died on inactive duty training, your family got a survivor benefit um, payment of X numbers of dollars that had to do with your rank and so on and so forth. If you died on active duty, whether reservist who was on active duty orders or a regular, say, regular serving member of the active component, your family got X to a to some power of of that money. We had a situation just in 2015, one before that with two Apache pilots, one as early as recent as 2015, where two pilots died in a Blackhawk crash. They were. Florida National Guard, no, they were Louisiana National Guard, uh, 
They crashed and were killed along with seven Marines in in um, in a in a Florida the Florida body of water. They crashed into the water in thick fog. So one of the pilots was on inactive duty training. And he was training, but he wasn't on active duty. So it was an inactive duty training orders. The other pilot, same on same rank, both reservists, both guardsmen, same rank, uh, as I recall, was on active duty training. Well, the family of the active duty pilot got about seven times as much money, four figures, as the family of the inactive duty pilot, who I think got about 700 bucks a month. So we, we didn't think this was right. They're doing the same thing, both in the same total force, uh, both serving their nation, basically the same rank, both warrant officers. So we went to war on this, and we got the fix in the, the previous National Defense Authorization, the, the, G, the defense bill, and it's been fixed. So uh, ROA, and oh, by the way, ROA was the only military group that was fighting for this. And it, we, we, we picked up the theme, we carried the theme, and we got it into the end zone uh, for, our, for our reserving guard. And we're very proud of that. That's the kind of thing that happens. Now, no one at any time said, we're going to screw the inactive duty um, pilot's family. It's just, just part of the old system that needed to be corrected. Things have changed, and reservists and guard members have borne uh, a tremendous amount of the burden of the two most recent wars. Oh, absolutely. 950,000 have been mobilized. Yeah. and Nearly 1,250, I think it's like 1,249, have lost their lives in the war. Yeah. And Eric, I want to jump in here and say that uh, the, the role of the reservist and the National Guardsmen continues to increase uh, as the uh, as the wars rage in the Middle East as well. In fact, in the intel world, for every 10 intel personnel, whether it's officer or enlisted, going downrange, eight of them are reservists. And so I know when I was in Afghanistan, I traveled to TAC North, uh, where you said you were, uh, and to Kabul as well, and every time I saw Navy intel, uh, they were they were uh, they were reservists or National Guardsmen. So uh, our role is not decreasing. In fact, it is actually increasing based on uh, billet requirements. That's right. Yeah, it's very true. And of course, uh, for people who wonder why that is, well, when active duty commands are asked to provide people, they oftentimes say, no, we can't do that. We've got a mission to accomplish. So the reserves are then tasked with filling positions, oftentimes right. uh, reservists filling positions that are not even within their, their MOS or their rating, depending on which branch of service they're in. Thankfully, there's an organization in the Reserve Officers Association that advocates for the reservists, that makes sure that they have a voice on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. And we've been speaking with the executive director of the ROA, Jeff Phil. Phillips and John Rothrock, the legislative director for the ROA. Jeff, recently retired from the Army. John, still currently serving in the United States Navy Reserves. Gentlemen, if someone is interested in finding out more about the ROA or if they're an E4 or above who's interested in joining the ROA, where do they go to find out more about the information and about the possibility of becoming a member? Our ROA website is uh, RomeoOscarAlpha.org. And my email is uh, jphillips, that's Juliet, Papa, Hotel, India, Lima, Lima, India, Papa, Sierra, at roa.org. Is that right, John? That's my yes, email, right? That's jphillips at roa.org. So I'll be happy to answer your emails and point you in the right direction. We're very proud of what we do. We're very proud of the reserve components, uh, a fabulous group of, of men and women 
families and veterans who are serving, have served, will continue to serve this great nation and, and with every day become more important to our national security. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, everybody. What's up? I'm Jake Hughes right now doing this interview because host Eric Dame is doing some fantastic stuff. Well, no, he's just sitting out there. He's not doing anything. He is so lazy. No, I'm kidding. He's doing great stuff for ConnectingVets.com, which, by the way, is the website you should tune into, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you follow us on social media, where you're at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. You'll get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off on the veteran community because we stay on top of that because we are the veteran community. We are a dedicated group of veterans bringing you the needs, stories, and camaraderie of the veteran experience. That's the new tagline. we got to keep saying it. So, Anyway, it's Monday, which means it's time to talk to someone from IAVA, and I am joined by our one of our most frequent guests from them, Melissa Bryant. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully, Jake. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Now, I understand we have a lot to talk about, a couple different subjects. Let's start up uh, with uh, the biggest news in the veteran sphere, really, in the well, veteran affairs sphere, anyway, the confirmation of Robert Wilkie. What does IAVA think about that we now have an actual secretary of the VA again? Well, at last, we now have our 10th secretary of the VA. And so that's great news in the sense that we need stability in the VA like nobody's business. And and that's the big thing that our members have been asking for, that the entire veteran community uh, truly needs is to see stability and to have a lot of the uh, political infighting and, and some of the other you know turmoil that's happened within the VA, particularly within the senior leadership roles. Hopefully, he can steady that ship and, and get things on track. We've got the VA Mission Act uh, that was just enacted into law. And so uh, he, he's got a lot on his plate in terms of coming in and hitting the ground running and ensuring that he's implementing that Mission Act, which is a complete overhaul of VA. So um, we're, we're hopeful that this means that this is the beginning of some stabilization for the VA. Okay. Now, has IAVA, have you or Tom Porter or any of y'all, have y'all met with Wilkie yet? Yes, I've met with him a few times, um, not as, as as secretary yet, uh, since he was just sworn in last week. Um, I've met with him when he was acting secretary. I've met with him when he was still the undersecretary for defense for personnel and readiness. Um, and so, uh, and we actually received uh, communications from his office last week, um, essentially a welcome letter uh, from his office uh, to myself and to our CEO, Paul Rykoff, saying, Thank you for, you know, representing veterans and for, um, you know, working with us. We're looking forward to uh, continuing to work with you. Um, I know it's been confirmed that for the AMVET convention this week, actually, that um, Mr. Wilkie will be there, and that will be his first address to the veteran community this week in Orlando at their national convention. So we'll be watching that along with our other VSO friends to see what he has to say then. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at is that I've because we've been speaking with the American Legion, the veteran of foreign wars, and vets, and they all have said that 
from their perspective, it looks like Wilkie or Secretary Wilkie is looking to really work with the VSOs to try to get what's best for veterans passed. Do you get that feeling? I get that feeling. I, I do believe that he's approaching this job in earnest and that he, uh, you know, immediately reached out to the VSOs, even if we haven't met face to face yet, uh, just because of scheduling challenges and um, the things that regularly uh, take place during the summers. But um, I get the impression that he wants to approach this job from the, or, or, let's, or let me put it this way, with a sense of the gravity that this job holds. And he recognizes that there's a lot um, of turmoil and that there's been, um, you know, so much that's taken place in the past, in the recent past, that he wants to try to move beyond that, work with the BSOs in order to ensure that our voices are heard. Okay. Uh, one last question, and I don't know if you have a position or an opinion on this, but uh, there have been stories circulating that he's, he's making some sort of massive shakeup in the leadership of the VA. And some are calling it he's ousting Trump loyalists. Other people are just saying he's just trying to move people around to the best position they can be at. And do you have an opinion on the sort of movements he's making? Um, I, you know, we don't have a position officially from IVA. What I can say is that um, if he's making a ch- if these uh, comments and, and stories that have been reported on on background are true, then, again, I think that speaks to him coming in and wanting to not so much make his mark on the VA, but to really take a look at what has been happening in the VA in the last few months in particular and try to right-size or at least place people in the right positions that they're best suited for. And so, um, you know, it's no secret that there's been political infighting and there's been a lot of, um, you know, just the the seasoned uh, career civil servants who have been there who have felt maligned in the last uh, few months, especially. If he's trying to correct that and if it ultimately does what's right for our population, then that's what we care about. Right. And that's what the feeling I get is that this guy seems very earnest and like he actually wants to help veterans. And it's like you get this feeling that it's not just a political appointee for an agenda, that this guy has the genuine best interests of veterans in mind. And it's something we'll have to keep an eye on because if things pan out the way they're looking, I think it could be a great thing for veterans. Don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm extremely hopeful. Um, again, I, I've talked about him in the past and that he's a bit of a storyteller. Anyone who sat with him in person knows he's a storyteller. And he speaks very frequently about his military family, his military legacy. That's something I can personally relate to. My father was a Vietnam vet as well. Um, and so I can understand having that strong sense of connection. For him, he seems to bring that family connection, you know, his own service, but in particular growing up, with his uh, father being um, combat wounded, I think that he really takes that to heart and he brings that with him to the job. And so if he has that level of passion and level of commitment to the job, then I do believe that that bodes well for our population. Well, great. And like I said, it's one of those main things we'll have to keep an eye on. Now, something else that we've had to keep an eye on, excuse me, uh, the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. Now, as I understand it, there were several things in this that affect veterans. Is that correct? Of course, yes. Can you and describe so some what, of them? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sure, sure. Sorry, taking a swallow there. And so, um, you know, one of the big things, um, well, there's a lot this for veterans, too, but there's also a lot for active duty. And for IAVA members, since we represent the post-9-11 generation, and many of our members are still serving, 
we were tracking both sides to see what impacted the military and also impacted that. And so the $717 billion budget, um, or bill rather, that will provide a 2.6% pay raise for currently um, active service members. And so that's the largest increase in nine years. Um, so, you know, it's important to mention that. And it also includes a plus up by a few thousand for the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is at the low end um, of about 100. But this helps with training and readiness um, for those who are still currently serving. One thing um, that also is for veterans is that um, there's substantial improvements in the transition assistance program where um, they're going to enhance the My Career Advancement Program and requiring a report on the effect of the frequent moves on spouses' careers. We know this is a really hard, um, really uh, huge challenge for our uh, military who are serving, who have spouses and moving from post to post, and you're not able to find work. And so that's some positive movement in that direction. And there's also a requirement for um, active duty reserve members to have an authoritative assessment of their earned GI Bill benefits prior to separation. And, and so, or release from active duty or DMOB, which is also important simply because it's going to really, I guess it's their way of sort of covering up the transferability issue, which I know we've talked about on this uh, show before. And uh, within IVA, we're um, dismayed to see and have a petition actually uh, going to Secretary Mattis that is uh, currently on change.org and also on our website where you can sign up and speak to your opposition to the change in the transferability rule uh, where those who have served more than 16 years will no longer be able to transfer their GI Bill to their uh, dependents or spouses. Wow. Lastly, what I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I know this is a mouthful. And lastly, the big thing I want to cover that was in the NDAA was that it requires DOD to carry out an annual education campaign to inform those who may have been eligible to enroll in the VA's airborne, ha- airborne hazards and open burn pit registry. And it also requires for a study on the feasibility of phasing out the use of open burn pits, which seems way long overdue because I think we already know what the impact is. It's a part of why this is part of IAVA's big six policy priorities, taking on burn pits, in which we just had a press conference last Thursday covering this issue. That said, we're pleased to see anything on burn pits within the NDAA and to see any sort of uh, directive that's given to DOD to ensure that burn pits don't continue to harm or other airborne toxins continue to harm our service members downrange. So I know that was a mouthful, but that's the biggest piece uh, that I wanted to make sure that I covered um, that's of interest to IABA members and to the rest of the post-9-11 generation. Um, I'll also say that it addresses the controversial military parade, um, which the president's requested, and that was opposed by... Yeah, yeah. So that was opposed by 70% of IAVA members, um, but it's still moving forward, it seems, and uh, planned for this Veterans Day um, in Washington, D.C. Okay, well, we'll have to we'll keep an eye on that. I think I know why most of the the post-9-11 IAVA, you know, like Iraq Afghanistan veterans are against it because a lot of them are still in, and they know they'll have to take part in it. And no one wants yeah. to. No one wants to spend their Veterans Day walk in full dress uniform marching up and down the square. You know. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've spoken to this in the past. I mean, 
I think the conventional wisdom is that it takes away from operational readiness. It takes away from training, even if it's not so much active duty uh, and more the reserve component, uh, guard components that need to uh, fulfill this, the requirements of this parade. That's taking away from precious training days of which you have, you know, very few per year. So um, I think it's, we can understand certainly the sentiment of our members and, and why they had such strong opposition to the parade. Right. Now, I'm going to go back. Like, like you said, you gave us uh, quite a mouthful, so we're going to kind of parse a couple pieces in there. Uh, the, the part you said about the GI Bill and reserves having to – did you say they had to make a choice of whether they're going to transfer before they get out, or how, what was that you said? So that's the new DOD policy, and I spoke with this uh, with Eric a couple of weeks ago. And so the new DOD policy is a change to policy to where if you have served for more than 16 years – you cannot transfer your GI Bill to your dependents. And the problem with that is that we just passed a forever GI Bill last year. And so it's not so forever anymore. That, that's a cut. That's a decrement to your earned benefit. Um, the DOD's argument is that it's because it's fulfilled its requirement essentially as a retention tool for service members. And so therefore, if you're at 16 years of service and you need to do another four years beyond that, it's already presumptive that you're going to do that so that you can retire at 20. And so what's the point of keeping that as a retention tool? Um, but it's still a cut. It's a cut to an earned benefit. And it is something that many service members look toward. Um, it, there is a year grace period, if you will, um, right now where if you are informed and, and you want to transfer your benefits to your dependent, uh, then you can do so between now and, and next year, around next summer uh, timeframe, and still be able to do that. But it does impact many folks who, you know, still serving, who, um, you know, that, especially for the post-911 generation, because we've been at war for 17 years now. Uh, if you came in the military in 2001, then you were impacted by this new policy. And so that's something that's really troubling to see is that, you know, I know a lot of folks, myself included, I was commissioned in May of 2001. And so I think of those folks who came in having a sense of patriotic duty and then to have um, this, what were perceived as expansions to the GI Bill last year that were enacted into law, now we're walking it back. And so that's what's troubling. And again, we have a petition that's going on right now for IABA that's on our website and then also on change.org where you can let your voice be heard to Secretary Mattis if you oppose this transferability rule. Well, absolutely. And I, I can speak for myself, and I think a lot of people here at ConnectingVets.com, I am opposed it because it, it, it's, it's, it reeks of the Army taking advantage of its older service members. Because it's like you said, if you've been in 16 years, they know they've got you, and you're most likely already on your indefinite reenlistment which means you're pretty much locked into your 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it, it, g taking this away from them is like, I mean, it takes away the choice because what if you have a child, but you don't know, but they end up and you transfer the benefits and they end up not going to college. Then you've just wasted your GI Bill and you have no, cho you have no say in the matter anymore. So, I mean, it's good yeah. to hear that. Well, I, you're just having children later in life. I mean, that, that's another issue is that, you know, there are many people who are just having children later in their careers. And, you know, this kind of pulls the rug out from underneath of them. Exactly. And that's why it's good to hear that uh, groups like IAVA are fighting against it. Now, 
Uh, you, I'm trying to remember. I think you said something about this and reservists was something like they have to do with something unique. Did you say that? So this requires for all active duty and reserve service members. And so um, basically it's, it, it was a catch-all for all service members. That's all. Oh, and okay. so it was prior to release from, it was prior to separation, retirement, or release from active duty or demobilization. So it wasn't that it was um, something separate for, uh, for reservists. For once, they were actually including reservists into policy because a lot of times what you'll see is that the reserve and guard component are forgotten about when you see policies that are enacted. All right. Well, this is, again, one of those things we're going to have to keep watching, and we're going to. And I encourage IAVA and all the other VSOs keep up that pressure because this is the kind of thing we want to change. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, another thing we want to talk about was uh, if, okay, I'll start by saying this. If you've watched the ConnectEvents.com Facebook page for the last couple of weeks, you probably know that about two weeks ago, I and took my fat self and decided to put myself through the Army's new combat fitness test. And hilarity ensued. And it, <laughs> yes, it was it was very funny to watch. It was not very fun to go through. But anyway, uh, and actually, the standards were leaked a couple, I think last sometime last week. And for those mm -hmm. interested, I failed. So yay me. Uh, does IAVA have some stance on this new PT test? Uh, I always say we have a stance, you know, we, we um, one of our interns actually wrote um, a blog about it. And one of the things that it could, there's two sides of it. On the one side, it could be something that's good for women and women service members, you know, may level the playing field. Um, it could get rid of, you know, the, the argument of folks who say, well, you know, there's two different standards and therefore the women aren't physically fit as the men in the, in the, in the army. And that's, you know, an old trope that I've heard throughout my entire career, as, as I know you heard too, Jake, and so um, it could level the playing field for women, and so that could be a positive. The other side of it is that um, this uh, ACFT, um, you know, with, with the events and the equipment and everything that's required of it, again, like, you know, I feel like you're spending an entire training day administering this ACFT. I feel like, um, you know, one of the reasons why we moved, the Army moved, you know, 30-some-odd years ago to the APFT was because you could do it anywhere, anytime, and it could be done relatively quickly, like within an hour, depending on the size of your unit that you need to administer it to. For the ACFT, you need equipment, and, you know, it's all like, you know, crossfitty, and, you know, there's all sorts <laughs> of uh, stuff that you need to do with it. And so, you know, I, I think it's well-intentioned, but by the same token, I think that you're going to run into issues to where it's not so easy to administer. Um, so I don't know. It remains to be seen how this plays out, um, in the long run, but it could be, a, you know, an, an equalizer. It could be something that allows for parity between the genders and hopefully takes away from the stigma that women have faced in feeling as though they're less physically fit and not being held to the same standard as men. See, and I'm just going to be careful how I word this. I don't think it's going to fix that because when you look at, you look at things like, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but I'm saying that on this test, there are going to be disparities between the genders as far as the range of scores, I think. Now, certainly, I've met plenty of women in my life that could blow me away on the APFT. You know, I'm not saying that, but on the average, you're going to have women scoring in one range and men scoring in the other, and then it will be 
two different standards. Because if you're weighing a male and a female at a promotion board, you can't just say, well, the male scored 400 while the female only scored 200 because that 200 for a female might be excellent. You know, you don't, right. you, you understand what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. And that's why I, I said that with great caution and think <laughs> it could possibly be something uh, that could help. Um, and, and, you know, and the whole aim of it is to replicate, you know, the, the tasks that you carry out, you know, during combat. And so I also argue, are, are those universal tasks? I mean, you know, where are we pulling that from? And so I, I'm just... I'm not entirely sold on it personally. Um, you know, we don't have a position on IAVA, but I, I'm not entirely sold on what this could do for us. I, I do think that it could be a burden in terms of just time consumption and, you know, the equipment and things that you need in order to execute the uh, the test. And so that, that's where I think it's probably going to, uh, I don't know, we'll see how 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 long this test lasts because i mean everything old is new again especially when you're in the army so <laughs> exactly and the, the story i'll end by saying the story i always tell is i once asked my my gunner at my first duty station i asked hey sergeant why do i have to do all these push-ups and he'd said because Hughes, if i go down you're gonna have to be able to drag 250 pounds of person and gear however long it takes to get me in the cover so, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's sort of the, the, the goal of this APFT. But I, again, like you said, we'll have to wait and see exactly how it pans out. Now, we're running a little short on time, but I want to get to this because, like you said, it's one of IAVA's big six, and that is the recent push for burn pit legislation. What can you tell me about what's going on with that? Absolutely. Well, you know, last Thursday, we had a really great press conference with um, several of our VSO and MSO partners. Uh, There's 26 all total uh, within our coalition to fight for the Burn Pits Accountability Act. And I've talked about that on the program in the past. It's uh, a bill that was introduced by two post-911 vets, uh, Representatives uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Brian Mass, bipartisan. And so the reason why we had the press conference is because last Thursday is when uh, the Senate broke uh, for recess. The House had already broken the, the week prior. And we wanted to celebrate the tremendous momentum that we've made in this bill. 111 co-sponsors in just two short months. 111 co-sponsors. And wow. so it's a quarter of the House, essentially, that have signed on to this completely bipartisan, Republicans, Democrats. Um, and the really, and there was also a Senate companion that was introduced um, also bipartisan by Senators uh, Sullivan from Alaska and Klobuchar uh, from Minnesota. And so what we appreciate is that many of the civilians who had no idea of burn pits and other toxic exposures that we endure downrange, they're now understanding and they're now recognizing that DOD has not been accountable in the past. That's why I mentioned earlier as a part of my NDAA uh, ramble, if you will. <laughs> One of the things that I was glad to see was the at least some education toward burn pits and, and study the feasibility of phasing them out completely, which should already have happened. But um, we're glad to see for momentum there because many civilians that we talked to um, when we're on the Hill just don't have a clue that this is a problem. And so it really speaks volumes that a quarter of the House now has recognized this is the right thing to do. Well, right, because people have often compared it to, have called it the Agent Orange of our age. And But what's important Absolutely. about it, this one is that it's not like with Agent Orange, if I understand it right, it wasn't till like 
years later that we realized, hey, wait, this stuff is a problem. This is something that we recognized several years into the war. We realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the smartest idea to be burning electronics and human feces and jet fuel and letting soldiers just breathe it in all day. So it's exactly. and and so it, it makes me feel good knowing that we're finally getting some motion on this, you know? Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of our uh, VSO partners that was with us was Vietnam Veterans of America, Dr. Tom Berger, and he spoke to that. He spoke to, you know, it took until 1991 for Agent Orange to be a presumptive illness for uh, Vietnam vets. And so we can't afford to wait 10, 20, 30 more years for this to continue to develop. We know that we have vets who are uh, developing rare cancers. We know that um, another uh, VSO partner that was there, TAPS, Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors, they're getting reports of surviving uh, dependents who have lost veterans who were exposed because they had rare cancers and they were exposed to things like depleted uranium that was left back from the Gulf War. And so um, there's a lot that's out there. Um, I would say that within the NDAA language, you know, looking at saying the feasibility of phasing out uh, burn, open burn pits, that's long overdue. What they should be looking at is studying the impacts and effects that we already know. Um, and hopefully that's the next step after we pass this bill. But I think we've got really tremendous momentum, and I think that we can get this done by the end of 2018, inshallah. Yeah, if God wills it. So, And it's important that to know, any Iraq and Afghanistan veterans out there, if you haven't done it yet, make sure you sign up on the VA's burn pit registry. That way, because you get it done now, so if later on in life you develop something, and you are, you're already covered. Okay, so uh, we're running. We're, I'd let you co- respond, but we're short on time. So, Melissa Bryant from IAVA. If people want to learn more about your organization and what they're doing, where do they go? You go to IAVA.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, you've been listening to The Morning Briefing. Melissa Bryant from IAVA, thank you very much. We shall return later. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.